Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on at ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We explain why Sergei Sorotkin landed the Williams F1 drive and ask what now for Robert Kubica. So Robert Kubica's dream of a return to a Formula 1 race seat is not over, but at the very least on hold, with a confirmation Sergei Sorotkin will race for Williams. But Kubica does have the consolation of a reserve and development driver deal with the team. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to dissect the Williams decision is Autosport Grand Prix editor Ben Anderson. Now, you've been a famous Robert Kubica sceptic in previous podcasts, certainly not getting too overexcited about his his performances, as maybe some have. But is there still some disappointment that the fairy tale of a race seat certainly won't happen right now? Yeah, I think for anyone who follows Formula 1 closely, there was a massive romanticism to the whole Robert Kubica comeback journey. And I think anyone would like to see him in a race seat if he's fully competitive. But from what we've seen so far and from what it seems Renault found out first of all and then subsequently Williams, he's just not quite there whether he'll get there or not in the future we we wait to see i think all of f1 would hope that he does and we do see him in racing in the future but i'm not really surprised that things have ultimately played out this way 
Well, we'll be able to delve into that in a little bit more depth shortly. Also joining me is Lawrence Barreto. Now, you've been following this story very closely over the past few months, which included attending the famous Abu Dhabi tyre test, where both Kubica and Sorokin ran for Williams. And none of this announcement has come as a surprise to you, given you've been ahead of the game. And in fact, it's pretty much been you breaking the news that first Sorokin was, was going to get the seat and then that Kubica was going to get this, uh, what is it, reserve and development driver role. So no surprise for you. Um, I, I'd say that most people weren't that surprised when Sherrockin was named as, as the race driver alongside Stroll. Um, it became, Only because you'd written it. Oh, well, there's that. I suppose people reading autosport's a good thing, isn't it? Exactly. It became pretty clear, I think, after Abu Dhabi that Sherrockin was going to get the drive. Um, and I think perhaps the only surprise was that Kubica, the extent to which his role will be with the team kind of going forward. But as we'll kind of get into later on, um, it makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, but I'll leave that for later on in the podcast. Well, let's get into detail. Lawrence, the point where the race seat seemed to fall out of Kubica's grasp was that Abu Dhabi test. So can you explain why Sorokin got the seat and why Kubica hasn't? Well, Williams made it pretty clear that they the idea was to get Robert Kubica into the team um, as a race driver this year. Um, and they had the support of everyone within it when he spent time with the team. They had a lot of time for him. They thought it'd fit in quite nicely. But at the heart of it, they needed performance to be strong. So when they ran him alongside Sergei Shirotkin in, in Abu Dhabi, it became pretty clear that Shirotkin was the quicker of the two. Um, if they're going to make this decision pure on performance on this small data set, which is all they had really, that Abu Dhabi test, um, Shirotkin came out on top. There were doubts about Kubica's performance, but the fact is they just didn't have any more time to put him in a car. If they could find out if they could eradicate those doubts or make themselves feel like it was less of a risk to take him on. So they just made the decision based purely on performance. Can you be a little bit more precise in terms of Sorokin coming out on top? Publicly, people see the, the peak lap times, which obviously only tell a tiny part of the story. But what, what did they see in Sorokin that he was doing that Kubica didn't? So, yeah, if you looked at the lap times, it, it wasn't point comparing them because they had different run programs so when they looked at the data when they went back to the factory they found it pretty clear that across long run pace and short run pace Shirotkin was the quicker of the two I think the biggest concern was the one lap pace um, I, th- I think they felt that Kubica just was quite a way off Shirotkin um, and they weren't certain from the runs that he did that he would be able to improve on that quick enough um, and when it came down to it they knew that by choosing Robert this year they weren't certain what they would get, at least with Shirotkin. They were more certain that he was he was strong or stronger across the board, rather. Also coming back to the point about performance and the fact Williams has always said it's made purely on performance, there is a financial element here, isn't there? Ben Kubica had cash behind him, so he was also a driver who was seen as a commercial opportunity for Williams, both in terms of the money he could get in and also the great story that would have made Williams a big talking point in a year where they could very, very easily slip a couple of places down in the Constructors' Championship. Now, Sorokin is reckoned to be bringing in the region of £15 million for this seat. so Roughly double Kibitz's package. Exactly, yes. So, how seriously should we factor in the the money is it because some people say oh well it's just Sorokin's got more money and that's what has cost Kibitza but it's not as simple as that is it no it's not as simple as that I think the money is a factor if you look at both of their drivers they have substantial personal backing that can be ploughed into that team in terms of Stroll and Sorokin but you know Williams as Lawrence explained they wanted Kibitza to get the drive and he did have the lesser financial package so they were prepared to make it work should Kubica have proved fast enough in the car that they could rely on him and that's just not the case so in a way Williams has pulled off quite a neat trick because they've got the faster driver in 
for now in the race seat. They've got both sets of financial packages and they've managed to keep Kubica involved in some capacity so they can still trade on this comeback story that everybody's fallen in love with. So, you know, whether it whether it works out in the long term, we don't know, obviously, but it's not as clear cut as just saying Shirotkin's in because he's got the bigger bag of cash. But that does play a role when you consider there were potentially other drivers that Williams could have considered and taken on. And they clearly have considered the commercial element as they've narrowed down their options. And there does seem to be an element of Williams being a little bit surprised by what Sorotkin did in the car. Because as we said in the Abu Dhabi test, I think Kubica was there almost for a coronation as a as a race driver. That was the expectation. Sorotkin was maybe there to evaluate the possibility of him being the third driver and bring some good money with him. And then this this completely spun with this performance. So yeah, that there is that that surprise which I think has led to Williams taking a while to get all this sorted out not just the complexities of any deal of this magnitude with with money always takes a bit of time to get over the line. At the start Shirotkin wasn't even really a contender for the seat and then when he even came onto the radar it was just for a reserve role and it was just because at, at, in Abu Dhabi they had the time to test him or they had the opportunity to test him they thought well why why not give him give him a shot um Opportunity. He took. You could argue that Shawkins taking the opportunity. Ben touched upon the the money side of things. The thing that impressed me most, um, or will have impressed the team the most, when um, the financial side was looked at, was that he initially brought half the package he's ultimately bringing, or that's what he offered, which was about the same as Kubica's at the time. And the team said, "Well, can you bring any more?" And they managed to double it in pretty quick time. And I think when you're able to do that and you have the confidence in which you can provide the money, when we've seen a lot of drivers in the past, there was Rio Harianto whose financial package never came through. When you have got financial backing, but you can come back and prove it, that's really important for a team like Williams where budget is going to be important. And it's obvious that the budget was a factor because although they talked about performance purely being the decision-making process, there were drivers who were contenders. Paul Resta, Pascal Verlein. Uh, Daniel Kvyat for this drive who well variously came with with no backing or some backing or possibly might have been able to get some backing out of Mercedes but none of them could put together a package that would rival certainly what Sorotkin could do so I, I think while in the case of Kubica versus Sorotkin Williams is correct the performance has been decided the deciding factor and it just so happens that they've also got a lot more cash out of it it would be wrong for us to suggest the team hasn't been going for cash yeah, I think that's a fair summary. Um, it's not as clear-cut as it, it maybe looks on either side because there were more experienced options available, drivers who've got more of a track record than Shirotkin has. And Williams has been talking about the fact they need a reliable reference in the car, that they've been struggling on that score because of Stroll's inexperience. So to then suddenly turn around and say, oh, for performance reasons, we're employing the most inexperienced lineup on the grid doesn't really add up. So the commercial element has to have played a big role. They narrowed their own options down to basically Sorotkin and Kubica. And yes, Sorotkin has turned out surprisingly, as it as it seems, to be the better of those two options. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's the best man to be in that race seat for next year out of all the available options. Well, you could also argue that the incumbent, Felipe Massa, who actually had a, a pretty decent 2017 season, would probably be a part of a stronger lineup at Williams if he was there rather than Sorotkin. But obviously he was out of contention and as a driver of his reputation and career he wasn't there to bring 15 million quid to to continue to race an F1 for one more year. No and it also seems that Williams internally lost their faith in Massa. It seems more based on his 2015 and 2016 decline. Uh, He was brought back 
to, to replace Valtteri Bottas, who they lost unexpectedly to Mercedes and turned out to have a really good season, probably his strongest season of the four that he did with Williams. But it seems that the baggage he was carrying previously means the team has kind of moved away from thinking he was a viable option. But I would have said based on his 17 performances, had he not had some unfortunate incidents, not of his own making and some poor reliability from the car, he would have been knocking around the Esteban Ocon level in the championship and scoring points in a similar number of races. So that seems like a pretty good good reference. And Paddy Lowe talked about how good a reference Felipe had been in his first year working with that driver. So interestingly, not having the same baggage as maybe some of the other elements of the engineering team. But ultimately, you can see, however they want to dress it up, that the commercial element has played a role. You know, Massa did a good enough job. He would have been a good reference to carry on with, but he can't bring anything like the same amount of money as the other options they were considering so he goes and they they look elsewhere i do wonder what would have happened if felipe hadn't given them an ultimatum that he needed to know before the brazilian grand prix because that ultimately forced williams hand they just had to say well we can't tell you now so if you want to know by now it's a no and i just wonder whether if he'd just hung on for a little bit longer or at least gave them another option the whole path in which they would have taken in making this decision would have been completely different and I think it would have worked out for everyone involved for the better. But as it, you know, as it turns out, Felipe forced the issue and, and that's that's what happened. Just one thing on the commercial side of things. I think that it's, it's all well and good saying that sometimes a team takes a driver for money. But you could argue that all teams and all drivers, the commercial aspect is important. If you get a top line driver, if they don't actually bring any money, it's in handover money. They're bringing with them the aura in which a sponsor wants to be involved. So therefore, you're going to get the commercial benefit that side of things. Um, I think obviously the Shirotkin side is the different end of the spectrum. He is bringing financial backing with him. But it's to say that a team is making a decision purely on one or the other, it's never really fair because they have to take in all, all factors. Really. And it's an expensive business, isn't it? So we can't necessarily blame them for that. Now, what feelings did we get about how much of a part Kibitza's limitations with his, his right arm injury? Obviously, his rally crash in 2011 after the first Formula One test. Very significant injuries. Basically, got a piece of armco barrier through the front of the car and then through the uh, where he was sitting. Very very unpleasant injuries how much of this is down to him not being the driver that that he once was we all know how good Robert Kubica was he was absolutely stunning driver I've no doubt he'd have either gone on to win a world championship or gone on to be one of the great drivers who should have won a world championship because of opportunity what do we know about how much of this is just him being a bit rusty and how much of it is just a question of he's a diminished driver through no fault of his own because of that damage well, whenever he's asked direct questions about his limitations and whether that, whenever people close to him are asked questions about his physical limitations, they say he doesn't have any. I mean, obviously there is one in the sense that the controls have to be adapted and he hasn't quite got the same range of movement, but everyone says there's no impediment to him driving the car quickly, even with the injuries he suffered. So if you take those comments at face value and they're not isolated, then you have to say it's all a case of him not being the driver that he was. And whether that's because he's just rusty and he needs seat time and he hasn't raced for years, or whether it's because Formula One's changed so much since he was a top driver and he just hasn't got the frames of reference you need yet to be able to adapt to what it's become, we just don't know. And the question is, has the ship sailed? Will he ever get back to what he was with enough seat time? Is there enough seat time to give him, bearing in mind the whole thing's moving on constantly? Or is it just a case of, well, if he has three, four, five more tests, it will all click 
and he'll be back to how he was. I, honestly, I don't know. And I also am not sure, even though I accept the logic for keeping him in the Williams fold as reserve and trying to keep this comeback going, how much influence he really will be able to have on the car. If he's not quick enough as a driver when he gets in, how relevant is his feedback going to be in terms of pushing the car and and also developing the two inexperienced drivers they have? So there's a lot of risks associated with this this lineup. I think. I do think it's important to to come back to the injury. I don't want to dwell on it excessively, but yes, people have said it doesn't have a impact on his ability to drive. But again, just as with the the commercial versus driverability argument, it's not this sort of binary thing. It's a it's a spectrum, isn't it? And what's unquestionable is there's there's a certain loss of, of dexterity there. There'll be a certain loss of, of feel, of feedback, all these things. You know, a Grand Prix driver uses all their senses, every little bit of input to feel every everything about what the car's doing. Yes, he can do all the inputs, etc. but is he just losing a little bit of a little bit of data, a little bit of that input that he needed? Because, you know, there's a reason Grand Prix drivers steer with, with two hands it, it's got I think it's a little bit too simple to say that that's not going to have had any impact on him and I think potentially it underestimates how how serious the damage actually is to say that because it's not the arm doesn't move normally unfortunately he is limited so I find it very hard to believe that it can be kind of completely dismissed as a as having as having an impact and and while time is a factor I think this has got to got to play a small part even if it's only just making a half percent difference because that's everything even if it's just costing him a tiny bit that's enough to turn him from this incredible driver into just a bit of a a bit of a decent driver also and he's still quick but is he that quick and that good as he once was well sure and even if it is only that one percent or half a percent the point is we whether it is that or not there's a double whammy in that he's also got this degradation that's happened from just being out of the sport out of cars out of racing like he's he's not just rusty he's absolutely coated in rust isn't he He must be because he's 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 not managed to reach the level that even people were expecting him to reach even allowing for all of the the time that's been lost and the the physical limitations so i think there's a really long hard road ahead for kibitza however it turns out even though i accept that He's done a wonderful job to even get to this point and is obviously working incredibly hard to make it happen. I think the fact that people have said there aren't any limitations is testament to the fact or testament to the work that he's done to get to the point that he is at the moment. He's still done an incredible job. I mean, this is what he's done is sensational, however you look at it, even if he hasn't got a race seat out of it. And the physical kind of training regime he put himself through, you know, putting himself through pain to try and get to the levels or the levels he felt he needed to be in which to drive Formula 1 car again shows the determination that he's got. He admitted, I think it was towards the end of last year, that he was only 90% of where he wanted to be and 10% is massive in Formula 1 and he'll know that he's not quite there, which I think is why he's so, I don't want to say desperate, but he's so keen to get more time in the car because I still don't think he really believes he knows for certain yet whether he can or can't do it, which is why they've been pushing so hard. I genuinely do think that once he gets to a point where he has had enough running, he will be able to he will be honest enough to say that he can't do it. But I genuinely don't think at this moment in time he he feels that he knows that answer for sure. Well, the good thing is he is going to get a chance to do mileage in the car. He's going to run in pre-season testing, during in-season testing, and he's going to be doing some Friday practice outing. So what? where could this realistically lead man you know we talked about him being out for a long time him being very rusty 
So is this a chance for him to blow away all that rust and to know exactly where he is? And also, are Williams thinking, well, maybe we run him for a year in this role, even two years? He's still not that old. He could be a contender for a, a 2019 drive or a, a 2020 drive even. Yeah, I think Williams definitely would would want to consider him for a race drive in the future if he can if he can find this speed that he seems to be missing at the moment. And whether he'll be able to answer all the questions from this expanded role, I don't know. I mean, he's been out of racing for a long time and I wonder if he would have benefited from racing again at a lower level just to shake off some of the ring rust and see how his limitations play out in cars that aren't as technologically advanced and don't have the same power steering systems, etc. But certainly he will be able to find out how quick he is. He'll be able to learn more about the tyres, learn more about how the cars work. He'll have live references against the race drivers currently on the grid as well if he's doing FP1s. Hopefully he'll be able to help the team move the car forward. So anything's possible. You know, I I kind of suspected that he would maybe end the comeback here if he didn't get the race seat, but he obviously is taking a longer view and thinking, well, okay, I've been out a long time. I can't just force my way back in because I'm Robert Kubica. I need time like any driver needs time to, to find my feet. And from everything he's said publicly, it does seem like he's very honest with himself. He's not. He doesn't seem deluded that he's definitely definitely coming back, that he's destined to race in F1 again. He's being quite cutthroat about it. And I I think he just genuinely feels he hasn't had enough time for his own circumstances this will give him more time and we'll see where he gets to hopefully he gets all the way i'm sure everyone in f1 would love to see that but we just we just can't say at this moment well my feeling is that if anyone can robert kibitza can so i guess that's the way you look at it i think as lawrence said he's gone through an enormous amount to get back to his level of fitness you know i was chatting to him at uh, the old sport awards last month and he was saying he's he's far he's far fitter than he was he's far more rounded should we say he's a much more mature character he's been through a lot and as as you get older you you learn better how to do things don't you so I think he's more prepared mentally than he was the amount he's gone through in terms of the surgeries on his arm over time that the recovery you know just recovering from that and going through going through all that those medical procedures and getting used to his circumstances and dealing with the fact that he was on the brink of something incredible in Formula One and he lost it all dealing all that with all that psychologically is incredibly incredibly difficult so i'm i'm hugely impressed and i still think even if it was just to have ended right here you would say wow this guy's come in he's been a serious contender for a grand prix seat he's been very very close but maybe just out of his control there's a tiny little bit he can't get back i mean what what an incredible achievement that is and i'm not sure anyone else would have got this far so i think it's important to keep that in mind this is this uh, this is far from a kibitz of failure. This is an incredible success that maybe just hasn't quite had that fairy tale ending. Yeah, not yet. But also there's there's a point at which you have to disassociate from the fairy tale and the dream and just look at the hard facts. You know, He's the, a driver contending for a seat. Exactly, yeah. And the Formula 1 team has to pick the dress, best driver it can in its circumstances. And that's why Renault didn't go for him. It's ultimately why Williams haven't gone for him in the race seat yet. He's also passed his physical peak as an athlete, you'd say generally, from an age point of view. So it's going to be harder for him physically he's not going to improve naturally with time and there'll come a point at which as he discovers how fast he can go he's going to tail off in his progress and it's just whether he can do that he can get good enough quickly enough to to be a proper contender as podcast what sport podcast regular Karun Chantok said he's had plenty of chances two teams are giving him a proper chance to see if he can 
come back to racing in Formula One. And that's more than most drivers would get. He's trading off his reputation at the moment. And at some point, he won't be able to do that anymore. And it, it really will be over unless he can somehow break through this this raw pace barrier that seems to be holding him back at the moment. Certainly, you're right. Time isn't on his side. He turned 33 in December. So there's still, there's still some time there, but he needs to get on with it. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he performs in testing. And Friday practice sessions are difficult because the track is green. There's all sorts of problems. But the team can get a clear indication of the performance level. They'll know exactly what programs are. And I remember in 2012, when basically the, the best-performing Williams driver was actually the Friday driver, Valtteri Bottas, rather than Bruno Seda and Pastor Maldonado, when you looked at to everything that, that played into that. So there's an opportunity there. So Williams are going to get probably the the best quality data almost from those from those Fridays in that regard to, to correlate with what they're doing. So Kibitz has still got a chance. And of course, even if he can't get in with Williams because Sorokin obviously plans a long-term future there as to Stroll but there's a year here in a contemporary car where he can also make himself a contender for, for other seats again and obviously they're still backing there it's still a great story so so maybe this one can can rise again but I do agree with your point Ben that I think that the longer it goes on the harder the harder it gets and I think I think it'd be very naive to think that that the incredible kibitz are driver of old is going to return so it's a question of just how good can he be you know decent grand prix drivers are with respect almost 10 a penny at the moment you can name a multitude of drivers who can operate at a good level and he's not really even in that category yet is he so he's got a, a long way to get into that category where you'd say well he's a good solid midfield option on the yeah. current grid let alone the driver that we saw from the early years that was capable of winning races and possibly world championships in the right car. And I suspect with mileage, I, I've got. I think he will get to that level where he can be a good, a good midfield driver actually. But is then, that enough? And is that enough for him? Well, that's that's the question. But I think the important thing is that it, the important thing is he's he's at least going to get to continue this this journey. I think that's important for him personally with with what's happening. You know, he's a guy who lives for motorsport. You know, he's doing this because he's a racing driver. He's not doing this because he hasn't got any other ideas or it's just what he does or he just feels he deserves it this is about racing from a from a very sort of passionate enthusiastic racing driver so so that's what makes this as well such a such a, a good story well Lawrence Barretto is going to tag out now as he's a very busy man with many important places to go and even more important people to see replacing him is autosport.com editor Glenn Freeman now Glenn let's look at Sergei Sorokin now his qualities we talked about how well he did in the test, but it's also worth looking at his junior career. There's plenty of evidence there that he's a he's a perfectly decent prospect, even if he's not ever been one of these sort of shining star guaranteed to get to the top. He's won in GP2, he's won in Formula Renault 3.5. Now, Glenn, you covered him in Formula Renault 3.5, so you've seen him performing over a, a long period of time. So do you think he's cut out for F1? I remember back then, I guess this is a good time to bring up the uh, the surprise Sauber situation. Was that 2013? 2014. It was announced in 13, wasn't it? Yeah. And of course, the intention was for him to race for Sauber in 2014. Yeah, it was completely. It seemed completely out of the blue at the time. He certainly, he certainly wasn't ready then for a graduation to Formula One. But there was a bit of spotlight on him then, and, and I was covering him at the time, and I always thought that there was enough potential in there to think, oh, if, if you do the right things to groom this guy for Formula One, there could be something there, and. At the time, it just felt like he was going to be rushed and he was going to be thrown in at the deep end in what would have turned out to be not a very good Sauber and it could have all gone wrong. So I think he almost had a lucky escape there. But if anything, maybe over time since then, 
he's rounded off some of the rough edges, but as you say, perhaps hasn't taken quite as many big steps as you'd expect from a, a superstar in making who's maybe going to force their way onto the grid through sheer talent. Um, but it's it's unfair at the same time to just write him off as a guy who's shown nothing through the junior categories and is purely just made his way through on money. He was he was in Formula Renault three point five as a teenager. I think he was seventeen or something when he started off and. That. Well, well, he lapped up very quickly because he started off in Formula Abarth yeah. in Italy, which I guess if you want to consider the level, that's kind of a proto-Formula 4 level, yeah, I guess, yeah. the way to look at it. It was the basis of Formula 4. Exactly, it, yeah. And then in 2012, suddenly he was in AutoGP racing there and starting to dabble in, in World Series. And then 2013, full year in, in, in World Series where he, where he finished ninth. So there was this big acceleration early on, which he then kind of caught up with. But that's a concern, the kind of plateauing maybe yeah I, th- I think there was maybe his backers rushed him up the ladder a bit too quickly but sometimes the argument could be right get him up to maybe a level that's past where he should be at the moment and then he's got to work harder to adapt to it and there were plenty of times be it in qualifying over one lap or in or in races where he would be capable of putting a weekend together or, in, or putting a race day together so you did think he wasn't someone that should be written off um but i think that in the time he's had since then, you'd have hoped that he would have put together a proper GP2 or Formula 2 championship campaign. And I don't think we've quite seen that. So I can see why he'd gone off the radar, really. And even when he came back into the mix here by getting the, the Williams half day of running or whatever he got, I think the feeling was that he was paying to run in that test, maybe with an eye to that being the next team where he was going to try and be a reserve driver. So for us to now be sitting here talking about him as the race driver is still a bit of a surprise, but is a testament to the job that he did in the test and the money he he brings with him. It's difficult to get a, a read even on his his F one form in the limited outings he's done. I mean, he obviously had that FP one deal with Renault this year, but the team says you know they let him down. The car was unreliable, so he and did. he only had four appearances. Yes, he's he on did, a total yeah. of seven. FP1 appearances in F1. The first one with Sauber back in, in Russia in 2014. And then... Yes, I remember interviewing him there. So, yeah, he did turn up in 2014. Yeah, so he's done those seven and he's had four test days, again, stretching back to 2014. So he's had he's had patchy opportunities, should we say. Yeah, and the best thing you can say about this year is that he was quicker than Jolien Palmer in the wet in FP1 in Malaysia. I think that was the, the cleanest run he got. And Palmer wasn't the, the reference point, really, for that team. So... It's difficult to to gauge what he's done in the car this year while focusing on F1 solely. Um, And as Glenn says, his form in the junior categories, while decent, is patchy at best, really. I think 2016, he was expected to be a proper title contender in GP2 and he didn't really kick on. A few few mistakes and some crashes and just a bit inconsistent. So definitely a decent driver, but not one that you would automatically say is worth a place on a grid of the 20 best drivers and certainly not the driver that Williams needs at this stage when they've got a very inexperienced and still developing driver in the other seat. Yeah, I think that's fair. And actually, wasn't Sirotkin in action uh, alongside Kubica again when when Robert came back and did the he drove the 2012 Lotus, I think, at Valencia? I'm pretty sure Sirotkin drove at that test as well. And the whispers coming out at the time were, that actually Kubica had done a, a very favourable job compared to Sirotkin. And if anything, Sirotkin's reputation took a little hit there because Robert had just come back and had seemingly outperformed him already. I don't know whether that was maybe people talking up Kubica at the time because that, the momentum behind the story was building 
or maybe that was a wake-up call for Sirotkin and ironically he's ended the year getting the better of him. Well, it's interesting um, that you mentioned that because uh, Alan Permain, the trackside operations director at Renault, who was involved in those tests, I believe, and obviously worked with Kubica before when he was at, at Renault, uh, said that there was a, a misunderstanding of of those tests in the in the older cars. And he said that actually it was very difficult to compare across the days. And he spoke quite highly of Sorokin, saying that actually he did a decent job. He says that he's quick and quite clever you know he's he's well schooled in engineering so he knows what he's talking about he worked hard with the team and he said he said that he deserves a shot so maybe he would say that at the time given that Sirotkin was involved with the team but Pemain is usually a fairly straight arrow and says what he thinks when he can so maybe maybe Williams have have got the perfect deal maybe they have got a, a quick driver a good driver that's better than people think and have given him credit for and they get the the money as well that can fill their financial hole. Sorokin's unquestionably quick. There's no doubt about that. He's finished third in GP2 twice. His 2015 season with Rapax, he was third. The car was a little bit inconsistent. The team was a bit erratic, particularly on the the tracks where the brakes were particularly heavily lent on it. It wasn't the best car to be in. But the following year with ART, he was expected to be right up there fighting for the championship and, and ultimately didn't. There were just a few too many mistakes. It was interesting actually that in both of those seasons where great things were expected, he started off quite quite badly, which is going to be a little bit of a of a concern. But I think like so many drivers at this level, his absolute peaks aren't a big worry. But what we haven't seen is that ability to be there week in. You've got to be able out. to access that all the time, haven't you? That's exactly. how ruthless Formula One is now. Exactly. I've got no doubt that there will be weekends where Sorokin shows very well. He's unquestionably worthy of being a Formula One race driver. But it's whether he can he can get the absolute maximum out of himself and exactly what it is that stops him delivering every single week. Can he access that? Can he exploit the maximum out of himself? You don't expect that automatically for a rookie, but you want to see a, a trend in that direction. That That's, I think, is going to be the big challenge for him. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a big gamble for Williams, isn't it? To have a driver that they know so little about in one seat and then Stroll, who they're really banking on turning around his qualifying form suddenly next year. If he can do that and get track position, then he'll be he'll be reasonably strong. He raced quite well this year, but it's a big it's a big if, considering that you know, he was out in Q1 12 times in... 20 races in his rookie season and it just it just feels a little bit like it's going to be the blind leading the blind as far as the drivers are concerned for Williams next year so we wish them luck yeah and it's going to be interesting to see how they get on anybody who thinks Sorokin's an idiot and just some pointless pay driver has not paid any attention to what's gone on the last few years he'll certainly have his uh, he'll certainly have his days so let's just have a quick chat about Williams's situation now Ben even if Kubica had been signed We've established that commercial concerns played a big part in what was going on here. This wasn't just find the best driver out of all those available. It's find the best driver who has a, a commercial package. And, and Sirotkin is, is definitely no more. But what does this say about where Williams is as a team? I think it says that their you know, much trumpeted revival that began in earnest in 2014 has hit the skids a little bit. Um, you know, Drivers are an essential part of the performance package the teams earn money based on points and if you don't have the best drivers you can get in the car scoring those points then you're going to lose out financially as well as competitively. They've gone from in 2014 having Valtteri Bottas who's now a Grand Prix winner and potential title contender with Mercedes and Felipe Massa who was a proven Grand Prix winner and former title contender with Ferrari to having two drivers who are in the car not solely but certainly substantially based on the financial backing they have which is not a statement of intent 
to challenge the better teams on the grid. They're on a, a worrying trajectory, aren't they, since the, the 2014 revival, which a lot of people put down to switch into what became the dominant Mercedes engine at the right time. And really, yeah, since then, the, the slide's been quite gradual up to now, but it, it felt to me that it may be accelerated over the course of 2017. And there's a risk, a huge risk, that if this goes wrong with such an inexperienced driver lineup, it's going to accelerate even further. And I think a big concern actually about this driver lineup situation is that suddenly there's a lot of pressure on Lance Stroll, where really I think he could have done with another couple of years of being the kind of the secondary driver with an experienced teammate to keep learning from. And I think Ben can probably tell us a bit more about this, but I'm pretty sure that Felipe Massa was there to be leaned on this year whenever he could be for Stroll. And I kind of got the impression that maybe Stroll or or Stroll's camp were kind of looking for that again. You know, they would have liked to have a driver that they could work with and maybe someone who can bring Lance on if he's going to be the focal point of the team in the future. And you'd have to say that even if Sorokin's very, very quick, he's now the, the junior partner in the team in some in the lineup because he's got less experience. Stroll has a season of racing under his belt. So suddenly he's got to he could almost get to Australia and have to lead the team. I think, you know, regardless of all the financial considerations, that's the other key point that the driver lineup is just too inexperienced. Paddy Lowe said at the end of the season that Felipe Massa had played a big role in providing Stroll with a reference. But not only that, he'd coached him. He'd actually actively coached him in how to manage the weekend, how to work the tyres, all sorts of different techniques. Obviously, they shared setups and everything else, but that's fairly normal. And they needed that reference because Stroll, you know, he's not he's not a mug of a driver. He has a good track record in the junior categories, but he's not experienced enough and not up to the level yet where he, he can... He needs time, doesn't Yeah, he? he needs time to get to the to the level that you need to be at to lead a Formula 1 team. And he was leaning a lot on Massa, and he won't have that experience reference anymore. He will be that reference. And if you watch Stroll's progression through the season, okay, there were a few star moments. He did really well in Baku, had a great weekend there. He was, a, he was mega in wet qualifying at Monza. But other than that, many of his performances, particularly on Saturday, were disappointing. And Abu Dhabi the last race of the season, arguably his worst of the year. So that suggests there's a driver who's certainly not complete and he's going to become the reference for Williams at a time when they've restructured their technical department, they've signed some key people uh, on the engineering team to try and kick their revival back into gear. And just as they've done that, they've taken what looks like, certainly in the short term, a step back on the driver's side. If you speak to the engineering side of any team, one of the things they are desperate to get from their driver lineup is knowing what the car is capable of you know they 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 are looking for a driver who pretty much every weekend will get whatever the car is really capable of so they know exactly where they are they know how much they've got to make up to catch the the top teams and I suspect Williams are going to start next year not having that answer from every weekend if 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 the car if they end up on the seventh row of the grid for a race they'll be going well would Bottas have snuck into Q3 and Maybe we'll get halfway through the season and they'll build some momentum. It'll all come along very nice. But I believe that the concern from the team side about the lack of experience is that they're going to be scratching their heads because they may have to give some sort of engineering leadership to such an inexperienced lineup, And they're not going to be quite sure if what the drivers want is what they actually need and if the drivers are ever getting the maximum from the car. Which is the big worry for, for Williams on, on every level, isn't it? Because... You've got the whole engineering side, development side. Williams' development wasn't brilliant through this year. 
And if you well, look arguably at the, it hasn't been since fourteen, has well, it? Exactly, yeah. And, and also, if you look at the trend for Williams, it was always going to be difficult for teams from sixteen to seventeen. But no team took a bigger step backwards in terms of their average pace than Williams, which isn't which is worrying. Force India is kind of their natural enemy. There's lots of talk about how positive the Williams is going to be next year. But the simple fact is, if the Williams and the Force India, let's say hypothetically, they have the same performance, there's no way in a million years Williams with that driver lineup will beat them. And that's before you that's even a really good point. that's before you even get down to the fact that Force India has over the past few years shown itself to be a more consistent team able to get the best out of the the machinery it's got. So it's it's really worrying for Williams. Everyone wants to see this team do well. There are good people there, intelligent people, but it's a team that that's sort of had this this upturn and it, and the worry is that it's all just gonna dissolve away because they because they can't build on it. Yeah, it's a big step backwards, I think. And it seems to me like they're repeating some of their past mistakes. If you look at pre-revival era Williams, they had a spell where they went from having talented drivers. They had Nico Hulkenberg at one point. They had Rubens Barrichello who'd just come off the back of a winning season with Braun in the car. And then they slowly went from that to having essentially two pay drivers in the car, Pastor Maldonado, Bruno Senna. They built good cars around 2011, 2012. 20, 20, uh, 2012, 2011 was a, was a poor season because they struggled with the, the commander effect stuff. But 2012, the car was genuinely good. But Williams finished only eighth in the Constructors' Championship when they should easily have been fifth and perhaps even challenged Lotus for fourth. And then you look at how they reacted to that underachievement and decided, well, we need to, to go down the route of employing the best driver we can find. They got Bottas in, they then got Massa in. So it seemed that they'd learned from that mistake and they weren't going to repeat it. But now we're back to a situation where slowly but surely the driver lineup's been eroded in quality and now you've got, you know, it's no disrespect to the two drivers they've got, but they're not at the level needed to fight Force India, like you say, in the Constructors' Championship. So they're kind of back to their, their sort of 2011, 2012 recent Nadir as far as I can see and it is easy for us to say because we're not worried about the commercial that's you need revenue the Formula 1 business model yeah we're not not paying the bills exactly it's not in good shape so I do understand where Williams are at with this but no matter how valid their decision making process might be we still have to say there will be consequences to this and if Williams get to the end of next season and say, well, we had a car capable of doing this, but we couldn't do it because of the inexperience of the drivers, all those two things go hand in hand. You had to make that decision, perhaps with good cause, but they have to take that on the chin. And then you get this sort of problem of the, you don't get that virtuous circle of if you get the best out of the car, you get this sort of momentum and and things start to build. You finish low in the Constructors' Championship, you get less money. If you get results that aren't so strong, you're slightly less appealing to, to commercial partners. So it, it, it becomes difficult. Now, I'm not saying that if they put the best possible driver lineup in, they'd suddenly be swimming in sponsorship dollars and be guaranteed to be right up the front. Of course, they, they wouldn't. It's not that simple. But there are consequences to taking this path. Well, they're in the last year of the... or we're coming into the last year of the Martini deal as well, aren't we? So... In terms of Ben talking about repeating what we've seen in the past, we could be on the verge of going back to the sort of plain, maybe navy blue Williamses that are in the wrong half of the field and don't have many sponsor logos on them. That, that I, I can see a lot of similarities. And while the team has changed vastly behind the scenes since the era that we were comparing to, another similarity is that back then, engine performance was relatively equal. So it was kind of the aerodynamic and chassis performance was a differentiating factor. We talked about the big drop-off in 2017, and this is when we went, perhaps we started to move away from engine performance being the big factor in this V6 turbo era. We've gone back to a greater emphasis on aerodynamics, and once again, Williams seemed to fall short. So that 
that's another potentially concerning example of history repeating itself. Yeah, it's a real it's a real shame for Williams because if you look back to 2014, yeah, they had the Mercedes engine, but they were the second best Mercedes engine car. There were two teams, Force India at that time and McLaren, that, that were behind them, and they developed very well through the season. So arguably, they, were, they should have won a race that year. Yeah, I think if operationally they, they were, yeah, exactly. If operationally they were at the level they were subsequently at because they were sort of rebuilding, I think they would have been able to get to get at least a win that year. Red Bull nicked all three victories. Well, they, the end of the left. year is clearly the second fastest car, didn't they, on average across the season, yeah. I think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. No, it's, it, was, it was a strong car, but yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be hard work for Williams. But we won't have a clear idea of how they will perform until the car hits the track at the end of February. So it's going to be an interesting subplot to pre-season. It's going to be great to be able to plot the progress of Robert Kubica as he continues to try and complete this sensational comeback and also see how Sorokin gets on because as we've discussed he's uh, he's far from a far from a bad driver he's, he's got real ability thanks very much to Ben Anderson Lawrence Barreto and Glenn Freeman for their input and remember there's plenty to read about Kubica Sorokin and Williams on autosport.com in particular in the plus subscriber area keep an eye out also for autosport print magazine which is out every Thursday and this Thursday's issue is focusing on uh, F1 2018 so all the new rules the new regulations the new the new topics and there's a little bit about uh, Sorokin and Kubica in there so thanks very much for joining us we'll be back soon with another autosport podcast Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.